Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode six of the International Sonography Podcast. I am Lorinda Andrist, along with our co-host, Jamie Fujikawa. I am pleased to introduce our next guest, Nancy Schoenard. Nancy is a graduate of the Seattle University Ultrasound Program. She is currently a program director in Vancouver, Canada. Nancy first joined the SDMS board as an international sonography regional director representing Canada. She has been on the board for now 12 years and just finished as past president. Please join me in welcoming Nancy Schuenard. Nancy, I'd like to start out by asking you, where did you grow up and how did you get interested in sonography? Yeah, I was raised in the Fraser Valley in southern British Columbia in a town called Chilliwack, and my dad was actually a radiologist. And growing up, I just I knew that I wanted to do something in the medical field, and I initially enrolled in a nursing program and lasted till Christmas because I decided that didn't seem to be a great fit for me. And so the following year, I decided to go to Seattle University, and uh, I entered the Allied Health Program at, at Seattle U. And I wasn't even sure what I wanted to do at that point, but I knew it was going to be one of those healthcare-related fields. And I actually predated Joan Baker at Seattle University. I was there before she was. And so when she took over as the, the head of the department, um, I would initially thought that I was going to go into cytotechnology, mostly because I thought I was afraid of physics and there was no physics course in cytotechnology. And uh, the best thing that Joan ever did for me was to arrange a half-day visit in a, pri- a private cytotechnology lab in Seattle. So I went there for a half day and there were two people working there in this giant space. And I thought, I didn't realize how social I was till I walked into this place and thought, this is not for me. So I decided that I asked Joan if I could switch into sonography. It wasn't too late to do that. And uh, of course she thought that was a great idea. And so I, I enrolled in the sonography, so transferred over to sonography and graduated in 1980. And by that point, because I had actually entered the program a bit late, there were really no local um, clinical um, internships available. And so I could have gone to Vanderbilt, but I didn't know how great Vanderbilt was in those days. The other option was to go to Australia. And so that's I went to Australia in 1980 and was there through till 1981. And I was doing clinical there, but it was such a different environment. And I enjoyed myself a lot, but I spent the whole, that whole year working on the Osonics Octosons. Those were the automated scanners with the eight scan heads. And I actually got fairly good at running Octosons and then moved back to Vancouver and there weren't any, so there was completely wasted training. And I had done a little bit of real-time scanning and a little bit of contact scanning in Australia. So when I came back to Vancouver to finish the last three months of my clinical at Vancouver General Hospital with Dr. Peter Cooperberg, um, it was kind of a crash course in real-time scanning and static scanning. And then I started working in 1981. So I think in terms of what led me to it, it just seemed like an interesting field. And people, a lot of people thought that my father had talked me into it because he was a radiologist. And interestingly enough, he, talked, he tried to talk me out of it. And uh, when I was in Australia, he decided that he was actually going to cross-train in ultrasound as well. So it was a little really? And people thought. So. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. that story. I love that story about your dad. And also, it might have been like, 
just not cytotechnology is what led you into sonography. And that I think happens to a lot of people where they start down one road and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is not it. (laughs) Nursing too. Yeah, exactly. So what about nursing? What, what did you find out right when you got into that? No, I think a lot of it was I I got in right out of high school and I actually think I was just a bit young to be there. And the particular program that I started was a hospital based one. And I didn't like the program. I look back now and think if I'd started another program, I might actually have lasted, but Mm -hmm. I didn't, I, it, it seemed to be, um, it wasn't tangible enough for me. It was they were doing too much. So they the first year was sort of very focused on a lot of more psychology things, and I really wanted to just get in there and do something active. And I just really wasn't enjoying what I was doing, so I decided I needed a slightly different direction. Nancy, you had explained to us before how you had joined the Seattle University program a little bit later, and because of that, the internship slots that they had available here in the U.S. were full. Could you tell us how you ended up going to Australia? Australia was really the only international. There was nothing available in Canada, and uh, the only reason I ended up in Sydney, Australia, was because Joan knew George Kossoff who was the director of the Ultrasonics Institute in Sydney. And it was actually more of a research and design institute where they they had a lot of more physicists and engineers designing things. And so when I got over there, they actually didn't really know what to do with me because at that point, all of the education in Australia was still on the job training. So I was assigned to the Royal Hospital for Women in Paddington, which is an obstetrical hospital, and that was about three days a week. And then uh, the other two days a week, I often went to Royal North Shore, which was more of a general hospital in North Sydney. And so I did that, and they actually ended up giving me a job after a few months because it was all on the job training anyway. And because I'd been doing it for a while, I was further ahead than anyone else they could find. So it was kind of of cool because the last six months that I was there as a student, I actually got paid three days a week to be there. So it was was interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but it was so different that I really, I had a crash course when I got back to Vancouver in terms of learning just how things were, were done in Canada as opposed to Australia. What were some of your most memorable moments in when arriving to Australia that was different than Canada and the U.S. where you've been? Mm, it was it was lower key. I really enjoyed my year in Australia. I found at that point anyway, in 1980, it had a bit of a slower pace. They were mo- more focused on living life rather than getting ahead. And most of the, even though Sydney was a big, busy city, most people, if they had a car, they had one car. It was just, it was a more relaxed form of life. And I found that, If you give an Australian a choice between going for a beer and doing overtime, they'll always go for a beer. (laughs) It was was a different pace, and I really enjoyed it. There was much less of a focus on gathering material stuff there. And I just, I, so I thoroughly enjoyed that year. And so, do you still keep in contact with anybody from Australia? I really don't anymore. I did for a while, but I've lost, I've lost track. I didn't know a lot of people there, and that was 1981. So I lost a lot of those people. So Kay Griffiths was one of my mentors, and she just recently passed away. She was, she was very high up in the um, ultrasound world in Australia. So. Oh well, that's amazing. I mean, that was a time where the internet wasn't even around, so you guys were would have been communicating other ways back and forth, right? We didn't even have faxes in those days. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was amazing. It's amazing how much, how fast things have changed, you know? So, and uh, what was the healthcare system like over in Australia when you got there? Um, It's two-tier. It was similar to... uh, Similar to England, where there was full public health that was actually very well supported. So I was covered by public health there as a student. But there was a second tier of private payers. So people who took out private health care coverage could often get sort of faster or 
higher level service. So it was a two-tier system similar to England. Actually seemed to work quite well. Great. And was there something um, what, that you did in women's health that kind of surprised you when you got there or that you had little experience with that you really saw a lot of there? I had little experience with everything. I had okay. actually never seen an ultrasound scanner when I went there. We had okay. no practicum and no lab in the program when I was there. And so I didn't know this was totally different from everything else. And it's kind of, they just placed me where they did. And so we're all up the uh, hospital in Paddington had, uh, it was a women's hospital, and so we did lots of obstetrics, and we also did neonatal head scanning for premature babies, so that's Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great, and those that was really primitive in those days, wasn't it? Yes. Neonatal heads. Was that with real-time then? For it the- wasn't. No, the, all that scanning with the ultrasound was not real-time, and the ultrasound, the, the idea is it would be operator, it would be less operator-dependent because it was mechanically scanned and it was unbelievably difficult to learn. And when I came back and people who did real-time scanning said that, oh, it's so hard to learn how to static scan, how to B-scan. And after using an octosagon, I found a B-scanner, just a piece of cake, because I was having to sit at a console like a CT console. Patient was lying face down on a big water bath and I would have to take an image and figure out where this uh, where the scanner was in relation to the patient. And I'd have to figure out where I wanted it to go, and then I'd have to punch in a code to move the transducer bracket to get another sweep. So, I mean, when, when I actually could hold something in my hand and move it and see where it went, that was easy compared to using the Octasan. It yeah. faded away fairly quickly because it really, it worked reasonably well for obstetrics, but it, we tried some abdominal work, and it really didn't work because the transducers were so far away from the skin that you couldn't get through the ribs. Yeah. They were, they were probably at least a foot to 18 inches away from the surface of the body. So for soft tissues, they did breast scanning. It actually worked reasonably well for breast scanning. And uh, then they did some scrotal scanning. But anytime you're dealing with, with uh, bones or gas, it really didn't work at all because there was no way to create those windows that you can with real-time scanning. Now, during your time in Australia, when you were scanning over there, was it the attending physician that would read the studies or a radiologist? Uh, actually, at uh, in Paddington, we mm-hmm. had, I think there was one of each, when I think of it. I, there was an obstetrician and a radiologist who read them. Uh, we did have, they introduced a little tiny ADR scanner, real-time scanner when I was there, and this was brand new technology in terms of using real-time. And I remember when I moved back to Vancouver, Dr. Cooperberg was a proponent of real-time scanning. And I remember when I got to Vancouver and Dr. Cooperberg showed me around the department and he said, he says, now, now are you convinced that real time is the way to go, Nancy? He said, Dr. Cooperberg, I was convinced of that before I got here. And mm-hmm. because it just made so much sense as compared to the static scans. I can see what was going on right now. Absolutely. What a huge advancement in the field from looking at the static scans. So when you got back to Vancouver, what specialty were you practicing when you worked with Dr. Cooperberg? At that point, um, the, the department at Vancouver General was um, it was a fairly broad department. We did neonatal heads because there was uh, there wasn't an obstetrics there was an obstetric section there at the time. So we were off doing neonatal head in the nursery. Did a lot of abdominal work. There was some pediatric cardiac work done, but I didn't do that as a student. That was uh, the others learned it later on. So it was we did obstetrics. We did we were doing um, amniocentesis. So pretty much the gamut of everything at that point. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. But it was a general lab. That's it was a general lab definitely. 
That's cool. And at that time, was vascular just thrown in? Vascular wasn't separate at that point. Vascular didn't exist. Okay. <laughs> you did vascular. Vascular, you did vascular. <laughs> we got into that a few years later. <laughs> you know, you're really groundbreaking. I just got to say all these things. So I'm glad we have you here to talk to you. So tell me about your boards. Did you sit for the boards? Were the boards existing at that time? Tell me about getting certified. They did. I, I actually sat for the ARDMS exams. I did the, in 1981, I sat for the um, abdominal and obstetrical ARDMS exams, and they were two parts in that time. So we wrote the, wrote an exam in the fall, and then had to come back in the spring and write part two, and that was kind of gruesome, and then they combined them into a single exam the next year or so, so that's 1981. And then I actually learned um, cardiac on the job, I got a job at Lionsgate Hospital right after graduation, it's in North Vancouver. And they were doing cardiac in their department, so I learned cardiac and wrote the cardiac exams the following year. Now, it was my understanding that in 1980, Canada established its own version of the SDMS, which was referred to as the Canadian Society of Diagnostic Medical Sonographers. Can you tell us about how you got involved with that group? It was a brand new, a brand new organization at that time, and so I became a member right away. I was really keen to get involved in things. There was a British Columbia Ultrasound Society, and then they formed the Canadian Society. So, Nancy, can you tell us if there was a relationship between CSDMS and SDMS? Good question. There really was no formal relationship between the SDMS and the CSDMS at that time. It just it seemed like it was a reasonable name. So it was a Canadian society and it was formed and it was just a professional society similar to SDMS, but obviously much smaller. Our you know, population of sonographers was probably about 10% as compared to the, the population in the U.S. And so they SDMS was formed earlier than that, and you, there was a question here about was there a Canadian representative? Well, there was an international representative on the board of directors, I think from the very inception of SDMS. So mm-hmm. there was officially an international representative, an international director, but um, all of us were Canadian. Uh, officially, someone from Australia or Europe could run for that position, but uh, it just wasn't that practical. And so there were always, the candidates always came from Canada. So CSDMS was formed, and I was actually on the CSDMS board two different times for two terms each. And what years were those? I'm trying to remember. I can't honestly remember my first term. I could look that up. But the second term was 1999 and okay. 2003. And then uh, that same year, I was elected to the SDMS board as the international director. So I went straight from the CSDMS board to the SDMS board in 2003. We know that ARDMS has been a standard of certification in Canada for quite some time. Can you tell us how that transpired? Yes, initially when when CSDMS was formed, there was an agreement to um, and it's initially accept the ARDMS exam. So those became the standard of practice in Canada in 1980 and, and have been for many years. And as things evolved, what happened in about uh, year 2000 is that the practice is slightly different in both countries. Plus, at that point, um, accreditation had occurred. With the programs in Canada were accredited or are accredited by the Canadian Medical Association. And so the Canadian Medical Association actually sponsors um, 
the conjoint accreditation process. And there were about 26 professions, allied health professions that were accredited through the CMA. And that has gone on, I can't honestly remember how long that has been, but it's been many years. And so they're all, the programmatic accreditation has been through that. And it was becoming more, a uh, little bit more problematic having US standards and Canadian accreditation. And so in 2000, uh, the decision was made to form a separate Canadian registry. And that was CARDA. So that was the Canadian Association of Diagnostic ultrasound professionals, registered, uh, yeah. So Canadian Association of Registered Diagnostic Ultrasound Professionals. And that started in 1980. And it was indeed, it was separate from, but related to CSDMS. They were two separate organizations. They actually had the same executive director, but they were two separate groups. And they were for, for a good number of years. But in Canada, the model is quite different in that Accreditation and um, professional societies and certification are often very separate in the US. And in Canada, they're much more connected. And see that I think with radiography, the, the radiography society is also the registry. So it's not uncommon for the registry and the educational society to be one institution. And so in 2014, the um, CSDMS and CARDA merged to form Sonography Canada. Both the society and the registry. And to clarify, Nancy, um, that the definition of sonography, as you're well aware of, in the world of the United States, you know, we were part of radiography and it was a great achievement to become our separate own occupation. Within Canada, is that similar, that you're part of radiography or is ultrasound or sonography completely distinct and separate? You know, it's an interesting question. It is described separately. I think it, it is considered it's separate, but not fully separate. And what we find in most um, in Canada, because healthcare is um, socialized, the hospitals are typically unionized. And certainly in British Columbia, all of the hospitals are unionized. So if you work as a sonographer in a hospital in British Columbia, you belong to the Health Sciences Association. And in that particular union, um, sonography is is still considered part of imaging hmm. and uh, sonographers we've been, we've been working since um, the inception of um, the BC ultrasound society you try and separate that out mm -hmm. and that occurred yeah they're still working on it but it's still it, they're, they're kind of different but part of the same group they're often part of the imaging department and you union wise we're just considered like a, a, a level three radiographer when we start so why do you feel like that works and why don't why do you feel like that doesn't work and should be separate um, what in terms of what works, it doesn't really work, but there's uh, it's very difficult to change. Mm -hmm. And we mean we recognize that the practice of sonography is quite different when you're lumped into a large union with many professions, and, uh, and imaging is a much larger field in total than is sonography. You, you have a hard time being heard, and so there's there's not really a lot of support for any initiatives that sonographers want to to start in, in working with that unit and with the socialized medical system. So that's been a frustration. So. so Nancy, just to clarify for our listeners, are cardiac and vascular specialties under the umbrella of sonography? Or are they separate and distinct occupations? Yeah, it is. That's a good question. Um, there is sonography is some, I mean, um, cardiac sonography is sometimes practiced in 
uh, a diagnostic imaging department with general sonography. Sometimes it's practiced in a cardiology department, but the sonographers are, um, they're considered sonographers and they're in the same unit. So it is another branch of sonography across mm -hmm. the country. There are, uh, and same with vascular labs, there are some vascular labs, not as many in the West as in the East, but they, and are, they're vascular sonographers. And so it's very similar to the U.S. where they have the same certifications. They are only just developing uh, vascular um, certification now in Sonography Canada. They've had a cardiac one and a general one since the exams were created a number of years ago. So, so that's interesting that the East has more vascular than the West. What is that about? You know, I think it's a, was just a little bit of a case of who was there. If you build it, they will come. If they had more, they had more vascular surgeons sure. to start their own departments. And we found in in the West, it just didn't seem to happen as much. And I think vascular ultrasound, when it started up, tended to be starting more in the um, the sonography departments. And I think, what, especially when duplex studies came into being, the equipment was in the ultrasound department, and so it became more related to sonography but they're not they for i don't know why it is and a lot of the non-image exams they're, they're just not as popular vascular labs are not i think the province of british columbia maybe has five vascular labs it's amazing there are very few wow so, yeah that is that's another big difference from the state yeah. and that actually is different from province to province there are a lot of vascular labs in ontario and in eastern canada so it's yeah, and I think it's that there weren't a lot of vascular labs, perhaps not as many vascular surgeons opening up their own labs. And so I think what happened is a lot more um, angio and, and CT was probably performed rather than, than vascular ultrasound. There's very little peripheral arterial work done. We do a lot of carotid work and a lot of um, DVT, venous work. But that typically happens in the general ultrasound departments. Hmm. And that's actually included in the Sonography Canada generalist certification. They include that. They include that um, carotid and leg vein vascular. So that's interesting, given that it's socialized medicine. I would think you would want to be cost efficient and obviously angiograms or uh more invasive procedures are more expensive than doing a vascular ultrasound to look at peripheral flow, et cetera. I think it likely was just a case of relationships were built and uh, was, it became a working partnership and there weren't a lot of vascular labs around. So, hmm. but it is just, it's an interesting difference right now. Now, Nancy, are sonographers unionized in Canada? And if so, what is your opinion on the pros and cons of being a part of a union? It varies, and again, it um, healthcare is managed provincially in Canada, mm -hmm. and so it does. It varies from province to province. Mm -hmm. But I believe I haven't really investigated this that much. But I believe all the provinces have a lot of unionized workers within the hospitals because it's, it's socialized medicine, so we do have standards. And it, it, you know, it's it's one of those things. That they they value idea to a union is it does um, they, they support they support the workers and so I think I do see the value but it's limiting there really is very little reward for merit I mean you make more money by living longer and that's and so it really it's there's very little um, benefit to becoming exceptional in Canada and that's one of the, the key differences I think the standard of, of sonography in Canada the average standard is quite predictable and I think it's actually quite similar across the provinces and I think the standard is actually really very good and but I think that if you go to um, there's such a variety of environments in the U.S. that the best places are wonderful 
and we don't have those really wonderful centers. Um, and I think but everyone's just too busy. It's all about workload. There's no time. It's very difficult to do research. And there's very little reward for being for high level practice. Um, on the upside is that I think we we are our minimum standards, are, I believe, are higher because uh, very few places hire uh, unregistered sonographers. Like all of all of the hospitals in British Columbia and the clinics that are approved to bill our medical services plan have to hire registered sonographers. And right now they can be either ARDMS registered or Sonography Canada. Do you think that has something to do with how you were speaking earlier to there's a pretty big disconnect in the U.S. between the societies and the accrediting bodies and the educational programs where in Canada they're a little closer connected so there's more acceptance of hiring or credentialing sonographers come from those It's an interesting question. That could be partly it. But I think uh, just because we have we have so many fewer categories, we have much less private medicine. We actually have very little private. Even the clinics uh, are typically not truly private in that they are um, they are privately operated, but they bill the public funds. And so they have to meet those standards. And so even though um, we have socialized medicine, money still is a huge factor in talks. And if you have to hire credentialed sonographers in order to get paid, you'll do that. And that really, I think, has been the standard. And that in order to get their license to bill the medical services plans, they have to hire credentialed people. And so I think that has really contributed to our very high percentage of registered sonographers in Canada. That's really interesting. That's something I don't think that I would have maybe ever found out if we hadn't have sat down with you like yeah. nice too. I think it's all altruistic, but it's often money. And so it's, yeah. but, but I do think that, I think the standards, the average standards are quite good. And okay. there's also huge communication among the programs. We don't have a huge number of programs, especially not a huge number of accredited programs. And Sonography Canada actually has a council, basically a committee with a representative from each of those programs. And so there's a lot of standardization and communication and really kind of a lack of competition between a lot of the programs. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, but it really is. We've got that. Um, there's actually a really good relationship between all of these people and they share a lot of expertise and information. So it, uh, it's a lot smaller. It's feasible to do that. It may not be in the near future as more programs are added, but it still is feasible to do that right now. So. For students, then, are they required to take their exam like as soon as graduation occurs or is there a, something that they take you know prior to graduation or how does that work in terms of registry yeah yeah right now sonography canada is not uh, permitting any uh, per permitting students to write their exams before they graduate and it's interesting because I know in the U.S., uh, with ARDMS, if you're in accred the accredited programs, students in accredited programs can now write their exams before they graduate. And that, I think, has been a huge benefit because while students are still in your program, you have a lot more control over them. And a lot of students, and also in British Columbia, when the students graduate before they write their exams and are registered, they're actually paid at a slightly lower rate. They're paid 10% less. They can be hired, but they're considered graduated, not registered. And wow. so they want to get registered soon. What we find is although we recommend Sonography Canada um, exams for our students, they also, a lot of them also write the ARDMS exams and they write them before they graduate and that way they can get full pay on their first day of graduate, uh, first day of work, which is interesting.
And yeah. I spoke to Stenography Canada about a similar plan. I think it works very well with ARDMS because the students can write their exams early, but their, um, their qualifications aren't released until the programs sign them off at graduation. And then they're immediately registered. While I remember to ask you this, you were talking about earlier the difference between the reason that Sonography Canada came about and then stopped just having the ARDMS exams down here for Canadian sonographers was there was a lag, I think, in, in some of the stuff that they were doing down in the U.S. versus Canada. Can you speak to what those things were? And you know, I don't know exactly what things are, but um, with, with our accreditation standards, we have what's called a national competency profile that the professional society, so it was CSDMS at the time, uh, put together this competency profile. And when educational programs, um, they, when they, you're creating your curriculum, curriculum, you have to use this competency profile and demonstrate that you're teaching everything in the competency profile. And um, back in, I guess when they decided to create their own exams, they looked at, um, a card, I can't remember what year that the card of exams started actually, but at that point, um, they thought in terms of creating a cross-referencing between the exams and the competency profile, the ARDMS really had no official relationship with that, and so trying to make sure that there were the, that everything in the everything in the competency profile was covered in the exams. So, just, so communications kind of broke down, and they thought that that wasn't going to be possible. One of the other factors at that time is a couple of the provinces are starting to look at regulation or licensure, and the, reg, the provincial regulators were saying that they would not accept an American exam for Canadian regulation. So that's when Canada started looking at creating their own registry. And for several years before the written exams were created, the students would actually do a, a clinical competency test in the program. So they would do a series of sort of test exams to test, test their competency. And that was one part of, of uh, being certified. The other part for several years was writing the ARDMS exams. And then once the Canadian exams were all ready and released, then they had to start writing the Canadian exams. So the earliest um, card-up registrants who worked grandfathered in actually did the ARDMS exams and then, but did their clinical skills testing through um, card-up. And did you guys do those practicums like Joan describes where a, a radiologist or um, and sonographer watched you guys scan or did you just do the writtens? No, um, I, actually, those went away just before I did my registry, my ARDMS exams. But Sonography Canada hasn't done that. I, I'm aware of that model, and that didn't happen. But what happens is the students in, in their programs have to do a series of test cases. So they're fully independent cases that are observed, and all the competencies are checked off, and they have to pass those cases. Interesting. Yeah, and if someone from another country or someone who's not a graduate of an accredited program. So the, the accredited programs conduct these assessments as part of the program. Someone from either a non-accredited program or from another country who wants to get uh, Sonography Canada registry, in addition to the written exams, they actually have to go somewhere and do a, a practical assessment on test patients. They actually have to demonstrate scanning skills to an assessor. And where do they do those test cases? Where I mean, they do them on a on a virtual patient, on a live patient, and it's a, it's a bit of a combination sometimes of um, a little bit of simulator work and live patients. Sort of volunteer. They're probably paid people. They're obviously are not a lot. It's not done a lot, 
And I mean, that's one of the reasons that Air DMS got out of this because the practical assessments became impractical with the numbers of registrants. And uh, that may happen in Canada as well. It's not a huge number because the programs all manage it. And most of the students go to accredited programs, so it's handled by accredited programs. I mean, the vast number, the vast majority of programs are accredited. It's very rare in Canada to have unaccredited ones. So you were saying there was very few accredited programs, but you don't have a ton of unaccredited programs yeah. going rogue in Canada. Correct. Yeah, because of the strict guidelines. I'm surprised you have any. I mean, I would think that the rules would negate them. And there, there are there are a few that it started off privately, but, but essentially um, the graduates, there are a few in Ontario, there are none. I think Ontario had a few, but not very many. And unfortunately, the graduates from those programs typically can't. Yeah, well, especially since they're publicly funded, right, because of the way that the healthcare system is. So they would have a hard time going much farther if yeah. their students can't. It's, and it's a, very, it's a very large country, but it's a very small community. So. <laughs> I like that, though. So, Nancy, if a sonographer from the States wanted to go up and begin a sonography career up in Canada, what are the steps that they would need to go through? Yeah, it is a it is a broad question, and uh, depends on the province. Most provinces will accept either ARDMS or Sonography Canada right now, so it may not be in terms of um, standards or registries. The ARDMS would likely be accepted for now, but once we're regulated, that may be may be much more difficult to do. So if it wasn't accepted by the employer, if you moved, um, like if you moved up here and they insisted on Sonography Canada registry, you would have to write the exams, the written exams and would have to then do a practical assessment. And so you would have to do, it's not as many cases as the students in the programs do, but you would still have to do a practical assessment. And the assessment is not deter, it's not there to, to um, it, it, the standards are reasonable standards. They just want to make sure that everyone can scan. And part of that is um, the unfortunate experience that a lot of employers in Canada have had with people moving from other countries, including the U.S., who are AirDMS registered, but have accessed the, the AirDMS through prerequisites that do not really require proof of scanning skills. And so we've had a number of, of registrants that have moved to Canada and employers discover that they can't scan at all. It's, it's a yikes, but it does happen. We have the, I think it's sort of prerequisites kind of six through six, five, six, seven. A lot of physician applicants who often all they need is a letter from another physician saying they have 12 months of experience. Wow. Yeah. So a number of those people have made it through to Canada. And so now our, our employers are quite gun shy about that. Yeah, I bet. They would, they would much rather hire. They prefer to hire always a Canadian graduate and Sonography Canada if at all possible. Yeah. Someone coming up from uh, the U.S. will often, even if, if a hospital um, is planning to hire someone from the U.S., they'll all, often bring them in and give them a scanning test to make sure they actually can scan. And how does that, do you guys have access, like here in the States, we can go to SDMS and look at some salary and benefit comparisons through the States to see where different States are paying. Is it like that in Canada? Can you guys access that? And is it much different or is it pretty similar across the board? Um, it's it, there. Are, it's all provincial. We, they don't do surveys that much because it's 
fairly consistent. They do occasionally do some surveys, but provincially, because all the hospitals are unionized, you can look up and see exactly what the pay rates are. It's published on websites. And so, um, and actually in British Columbia, we've been um, lagging in terms of salaries and it's been a problem. We have had some people moving to other provinces because we have a very high cost of living here and our salaries are lagging behind other provinces. Mm. But lower, I think, probably lower on average than in the U.S. in D.C., so... I'm curious, Nancy, how does the architecture of the Canadian healthcare system have an impact on the occupation itself? Hmm, uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, it is largely, it's it's a socialized system, and there are some interesting impacts. Um, we have in, uh, shortages of sonographers basically all across the country, and we're in that catch-22 where um, the public schools can't just decide to add a lot more seats. They have to be approved by the Ministry of Advanced Education to add more seats. Mm-hmm. And so, and we've had some people leaving the province, and so that the supply is not kept up with the demand. And so, that's one of the effects that you can't that e- you can't easily open up another school. And um, so, we do have shortages. And then, of course, when you get departments with shortages, they're less inclined to accept students because they're already short and don't want to take the extra time to teach students. So that's one of the factors. I mean, we do have, there are a lot of wait lists in Canada. Socialized medicine is, has a lot of advantages, but one of the disadvantages is, is we do have wait times. And it's interesting is although the, the UK and Australia have a two-tier system, we sort of have a two-tier system, but it's not as well evolved. And one interesting aspect is that the Canada Health Act actually makes it illegal to privately bill for um, a a test or or procedure that is covered by public health care. What's interesting, if I wanted to open up a clinic down the street and do an ultrasound, actually it would technically be illegal for me to charge a patient or radiologist to charge a patient for ultrasound because ultrasound is covered under the public health care system. Does that mean all ultrasound exams are covered or are there some ex- exceptions, for there example? Are, there are some exceptions. And so some private companies have. First. So something like a screening um, echocardiogram for insurance purposes is not covered. So a private so a, a, a private company can do that. That line is being blurred and it's being very much challenged by the physicians and the medical community. And so it's a very interesting dynamic. It's it's a whole huge story unto itself, but that's one of the factors that we really are, we're held back in terms of supply um, by government policies. And so that they even restrict the number of um, of rooms and scanners that the clinics or our clinics that are approved to practice can only have so many rooms because the, the government is paying the bills. So they feel that if they limit the number of scanners available, then the use will be less. And all you know, so the, the access has not kept up with the demand. And so that's probably the largest problem across the whole country. Well, earlier you referenced the wait times, and I'm curious. What is an average wait time for something that is like somebody's having right upper quadrant pain, they need to be evaluated for gallstones versus someone that's having a serious medical problem in the emergency room? How do those get triaged? If you're in the emergency room, critical problems are actually dealt with quite well in Canada. They're they're given priority and you will be dealt with. Uh, The people who suffer are the people with chronic problems. 
So as you say, right upper quadrant pain, it varies and it varies a lot by location and it varies by the exam type. Um, some cardiac departments have wait lists of, of six months for non-urgent echocardiograms. Seriously, there are carotid, carotid studies if it's a non-urgent, so you've got follow-up or, or something with just TIAs. Um, that could be, it could be anywhere from two weeks to four months, depending on the site. Wow. There are definite wait lists. So in high-risk um, obstetrics up there, how, do, so do those automatically take priority as far as people getting in for something like high-risk pregnancy that can't wait? Yeah. High-risk, urgent things will typically be done. If you're having a heart attack, you will be dealt with now. If you need a, if you need a knee replacement, you'll be waiting a year. And so it's anything that is not... Um, not really critical. So with that being the case, if hypothetically the powers that be up in Canada wanted your opinion on what the solution to the system is, what would your recommendations be? There are people who are very much in favor of private health care and others that are not. And what I, you know, what I could envision is a bit of a, a hybrid or two-tier system where um, you could have private facilities with private insurance or private pay. But what the fear with that is that all of the, the talented practitioners will leave the public system and go to the private system. But I think it would be possible to develop a, you know, a, an agreement that in order to approve the private system, people would have to agree to um, a certain proportion of work in the public system. And I think something like that actually could, could sure. be created where you still, that the talented people would still be working in public, but if they wanted to do something private, they have to at least contribute X amount to the public system in order to get the approval for the private system. It'd be really interesting if they could find a model like that where you could have, because that's, you know, it operates a bit like that in the UK and Australia, and it seems to work fairly well, but it's something yeah. that they're it's, it's a political hot potato right now. Absolutely. And it sounds like it's so funny to me how your idea of compromise and a hybrid, you called it, Seems like it would work best for everybody, but politically, it's always just hard in every country because the sides are so polarized yes. that the hybrid idea is somebody says, oh, no, I have to give up something. Nope, I have to give up something. Nope, we're not doing that, even if it's for the better good of all people. Yeah. And I do think the Canada Health Act needs some revisions because this whole idea that you cannot charge privately for something that's available publicly, it bothers me because I believe in a public system, but I would rather see something new. That is more like public education, where um, there's a, there's a good public education system in Canada, but there are private schools as well, and no one has a problem. Yes, every child is entitled to access to education, but no one has a problem with parents sending their child to a private school. Yeah, and so I don't like access to public health care is incredibly important, but it shouldn't be a problem for people to access private health care, they would take themselves out of the public system and reduce the burden. Yeah. So that would be basically like them saying that anybody um, in the private schools can't learn anything that anybody's going to learn in the public yeah. schools. They do, they're not yeah. getting reimbursed for it. Exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting, although so sort of for education, they've come up with a, a sort of a double system and it works just fine. But yet in, in healthcare, there's that rule in place and it's very interesting. But I'm finding there's there's less compliance with that. There are more clinics that are doing more tests anyway, and they're not really being punished for it. So it's, it is evolving. It's going to be really interesting. And one of the, um, I think the, 
I don't know if he's the president of the Canadian Medical It was someone in the Canadian Medical Association was actually like taking the government to court over this. So it's interesting. Oh, like you're kind of hopeful that, that that may kind of find a common ground on those mm-hmm. eventually. Well, that's yeah, good. it would be nice to see. Nancy, I want to backtrack for a little bit when we were talking about sonography. I have two questions. One, does a sonographer have to work for, under the supervision of a physician? Because I'm sure you recall being part of the SDMS board in the U.S. That is a huge issue. As well as, is there any progression or discussion about the advanced practice level of a sonographer in the Canadian healthcare system where it might help alleviate those long wait times where someone can be a physician's assistant equivalent? Yes. It's excellent two questions. And um, basically, sonographers um, work under general supervision, so direct supervision. We don't have to have a physician in the room, but there has to be someone sort of nearby. And it's become a little bit looser in that you don't necessarily have to have a reporting physician right in, in the department, but they have to be at least accessible to review images. And so that's happening more in some some rural areas. There may not be a radiologist there, but if there's someone that they can use telemedicine and log in and see it. But it, it, it still is very much supervised. Sonographers don't do any of their own reporting. It's very similar to us where we do, we, we do it, but we're not recognized. It's, it's all exactly the same stuff where we know we're making the decisions. We are filling out um, the worksheets and essentially filling out the reports that are dictated or signed by radiologists in, in, in many cases. Um, some of the hospitals, the radiologists are still very involved, but much less so. And I'm sure you're seeing the same thing in the U.S. There used to be the, the mentor radiologists that came in and checked every scan and taught the students. And now half the time they won't even turn off their CT scans. While, and you know, people just bring in their cases and run them by the radiologist and go, if that. A lot of them just put their um, their technical reports and their summaries in a pile and they read them at the end of the day. And so it's still, they officially are, they, the physicians are still legally responsible for reporting. So sonographers basically have no credit for doing that as well. And what's frustrating to me is that there is absolutely no movement in advanced practice. And I, I, I would think that in the Canadian environment, it, it should be easier. I think it's more just a matter of we don't have a lot of people and a lot of energy and time to, to put into that because I would think in a, in a public health care system, that should be part of it where you have a public health care system that's paying all of the bills in a hospital. And so if you could present um, a strategy that says, look, we can do this and this can actually incre- in- increase throughput, it can increase efficiency and quality. And I, I actually did a little presentation at the Sonography Canada meeting looking at the whole, the idea of advanced practice, whatever you want to call it, is frightening to physicians, but I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if we should start focusing the conversation more initially on a quality, a quality assurance sonographer. And that person then is acts like the advanced practice sonographer, so they would be mentoring and reviewing and looking for quality. Because what we're finding is the radiologists are not taking the time. I think the quality of work overall is dropping because sonographers are not being sent back to take additional images or justify things. There's too much, there's, I mean, I think the standard of work, what concerns me is if um, you have a sonographer who doesn't have high personal standards, not much happens. They're, they're, what happens is that they, um, 
often the sonogram is just interpreted as being non-diagnostic in the order of CT. And that's just a huge frustration to me. Rather than sending them back in, do a better job, and bring me the real information. And if you have, if you want to call them quality assurance sonographers so it doesn't scare the doctors, that's fine. But that would actually help to improve the standards. And that someone like that would be available to mentor the new graduates and make sure that they are reaching those standards. It'd be a wonderful position. And um, that's sort of my thoughts, but in terms of getting some traction on it, I haven't had time to do that. Maybe when I retire. I, lo- I like the time. Time. But I would see a huge benefit. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, I think that sounds a lot like the lead sonographer in a lab right now. That's kind of what, yeah. what we call them. But they basically make sure everybody's checked all the boxes. Everybody has their paperwork in to the admin. Everybody is, you know, they're figuring out hours. They're figuring out if the numbers of patients are equal to the hours that we're doing and that people are following protocol. And I like the quality assurance sonographer Yes, but what? Because you can create an actual job description and give it a different category, and at least that's a first step. That's a first step in in getting somewhere. Because we, I mean, so we all know that so many sonographers do what advance. There are no plans for independent practice, so there's nothing really like a nurse practitioner that anyone is looking at at this point in time. But it really is. I was at um, that um, big consensus meeting in Washington. Are you there? Where are you? I can't remember. The one back in practice. Yeah, it was like five or something, or six, it was years and years ago. But that was such an interesting thing, saying that this, you know, advanced practice sonographer really was like a chief a chief um, resident. That's how these people operate. It's like, those are the people you bring, people bring their cases to them, and they do, they, like the easy, normal ones, um, they do, and then the other ones go to the radiologist. In England, that's what happens, actually, is that obstetrical sonographers um, do all of their own readings. No one reads normal obstetrical sonograms yet. The sonographers do. And so it would be, I think it'll be an evolutionary thing, but I think from a public health point of view, if you can say that you can actually improve quality, because they're all concerned about quality, and assist with, um, with throughput, then I think... That, that might be something that might resonate. If you, if you say advanced practice, it just scares people. They don't understand what that is. But it's not replacing the physician. It's just making the whole system work better <laughs> and, and some recognition for the sonographers who have the skills. Yeah, that's interesting that it comes down to maybe a job, the title of the job, because mm-hmm. you know we, we have to be willing to bend to figure out how we can make that career ladder go up, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I, don't, I, I haven't gotten it. Anywhere with this. this. This is just my idea. <laughs> well, that, well, now I'm not convinced it'll work, but I do. Think, yeah. yeah, it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> and a friend of mine actually proposed a similar thing. She was a supervisor in a large department in Vancouver, but again, couldn't get traction with her bosses, mostly because they just don't understand. They don't understand enough about what we do. And they did thought, oh, that's just a waste of money. It's so ridiculous. It's not a waste yeah. of money at all. So I think the key would be getting support from the radiologist to make them understand it's not going to cause them any problems. It's actually mm-hmm. going to help them. Sure. So, Nancy, do you have any concerns currently about how sonographers are practicing their exams? My concern is that um, sonographers are not having a lot of their work checked anyway. It's like so many of the exams, whether it's if it's a simple abnormality or a normal case, they don't have a check, but not all of the sonographers, especially the new ones, have the skills to do that. They yeah. just like when you're new, you shouldn't be in that position. And yet I'm seeing people being put independent far too soon because they're not checking their cases with the radiologists. Yeah. And so it'd be nice to just have them checked with 
Now you have a mentor, that's one thing, but there needs needs to be somebody with some teeth and the ability to throw things back. Right now, like a supervising stenographer doesn't have the right to send a stenographer back in. That's not part of their role. And uh, whereas someone in a quality assurance role could actually do that. So it'd be interesting to see if something evolves with that. Yeah, absolutely. Nancy, could you tell us a little bit about your participation over the years with the SDMS? You know, it was interesting. I thought I, I was fortunate. I got onto the, the board of directors of the International Rail uh, with very little work and didn't even know a, a lot about the organization. I'd been a member for many, many years. And so I said, I've been on the uh, the board of directors and associated with committees while I've been doing that. And was on when there was the, the new foundation was created, I was appointed to the foundation board of directors and then got back on the board of directors. So, so I realized this was my, my 15th consecutive um, board meeting at the annual conference. So 15 in a row. And I, I do think that's a record. <laughs> there are people who've had, I think Jean might have more altogether, but they weren't consecutive. So it's really enjoyed working with all the people on the board. I feel I feel very outranked and outclassed by a lot of the people who work with SDMS because they're such as brilliant people. But I feel like I've learned a lot. And it's just, I think, in terms of value, I think it's just because I've been around for so long and have been to different places. I think just, just having a different perspective sometimes to offer to situations has really kind of been my greatest value. I actually saw that the international role is gone now. And I actually, it was my idea. It's one of those, it was nice to have, but I think it's actually a role that no longer has the place. And especially because um, Stenography Canada is its own institution now. And so uh, I think it's, it's great to have that relationship through the liaisons, but I think actually having an official voting board position isn't needed anymore. And it got to the point we had trouble finding people. We, we had trouble finding SDMS, SDMS members in Canada to even run for the role. And so I thought it really, it's, it, it was a wonderful opportunity for many years, but it's kind of come full circle and it's gone now. And Lorinda, you spent some time with Nancy when she was on the board and when you were on the board. Anything to add to that? She was always, we would be sitting dwelling on some issue and we're going through layers and layers and then, Nancy would get acknowledged and she would speak and say something so succinctly and really distill it down and everybody would go like, oh, yes, let's go with what Nancy said. Yeah. <laughs> but she just has that gift. I yeah. Mean, she can just distill it down, listen to both yeah. sides and just pick out the real key points. And that's, that's yeah. And as I say, that's like, it's kind of my problem solver brain and all the wheels are going just trying to come down to the essence of things but I thought and and I find although I like to chat a lot in terms of written documentation and stuff often less is more if you can get it words matter and less is more if you can get it down to the key issues and man you are a hero and I cannot figure out how to do that but I will try and use you as a mentor to try and scale <laughs> things down Nancy, when I was fresh out of school and Lorinda was my clinical instructor, she not only encouraged me to get involved with the SDMS, but told me that would be part of my internship is getting involved with the SDMS. And of course, now I realize that it was not something I have to do, but something that I should do. Because like you said, surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals who are passionate and have so much to contribute can be such a positive influence on your career. What would you tell students coming fresh out of a program about getting involved in organizations like the SDMS? Well, it really is. I think a lot of this is just you have to own your profession. And if you don't own your profession, somebody else might. 
and you'll be paying the price eventually. And I, years ago, decided that if, I, if I'm not willing to be part of the solution, then I have to live with the problem. And so I, 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 I give up my right to complain if I'm not willing to be part of the solution. And, but I also said from my personal experience, uh, yes, it's been work, but it's been really valuable work. And the people that I have met and what I have learned has been so enriching. I've learned so much from the people that, that I've, I've worked on different projects. And my understanding has increased so much by being with these volunteer organizations that um, you get back way more than you get when you get involved in these. And mm-hmm. I said it's been so rewarding to me over all these years. And so really with all, all students, like I know Joan made me join. I don't even remember, but I know it happened when I joined at SDMS. And and, uh, and with, with us, we our, our um, students all joined Sonography Canada and they joined the, the Provincial Society as well. And that's, as students, we all like, this is what you're going to do. We're signing you up and, and they all do. And it's, it, 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 they start interacting with the profession right away. And it's very important. Well, that leads us right into my next question. So as an educator, what factors are working for sonography programs in Canada? And on the flip side, what issues do you see as obstacles that need to be addressed for the future? Okay. Um, What things are working for the programs in Canada? Um, I think the programs largely have quite high standards. I would still, I think one of the things that we're looking at, even with accredited programs, is I think we need to more clearly define minimum standards. Our accreditation is solely um, competency-based, so there's a competency assessment, but there are no absolute requirements in terms of minimum program length or content. And so that, I think, is something that we do have to look at. I think some of the new programs are too short. And so I think that's that, that's one of the challenges. I think um, it would be we have been held back by the government in terms of creating um, bachelor degree programs. And because they just see it as a career um, credential creep and they don't want, and so they're, they're not supportive of that. And that's one of the things that is not working with education. I think the educators do a, a very good job within the, um, the confines of how we have to operate. But I think we need to be able to expand what we do. And especially if we want to be competing in this changing healthcare marketplace, we need to have more people with degrees and advanced degrees to be part of the decision makers. Where I have our program is a diploma program. It's a good program. They're very the graduates are very highly skilled, but it would be really nice to at least have a degree completion option where they could then have a degree that could ladder into a master's degree, which for them to go into um, administration and management things like that. So that's one of the things that I think we need to become a lot more nimble with providing those opportunities and sort of keeping up with how the the healthcare system is changing. The education is not changing quickly enough. Okay. And you said the program directors meet together. What what is that? Is that organization called? Do you guys have a name or do you guys just meet? um... It it actually is just, it's the National Educators Advisory Council of Sonography Canada. Oh, okay. organized by Sonography Canada. And they have traditionally met face-to-face once a year, and Sonography Canada has funded that, which has been wonderful. We don't know if that's going to be able to continue because it's expensive, but it's been a wonderful thing to do to be able to meet all these other educators and develop relationships with them. So I hope they can at least keep things going at least, even if it's not every year, if it's every other year, and they can continue having... um, teleconferences and things just to yeah that's what I was going to say I think I think it's a wonderful idea and I think it could bridge a lot of um of programs here in the U.S. if we would do that and and put important issues high up on the on the platter as everybody gets together and finds you know 
what, what is working and what's not working. Um, and I feel like that is why this podcast came around because I started to realize like, wait a minute, we, we've moved so much in all in sonography technology, right? All this technology we've moved and moving so fast yet. We still don't have a way for us to all get on to a forum and really talk face to face or even on podcasts. Um, and it's so easy for me to talk to somebody in India and Australia and the Philippines, even face to face, but, but to get them on and all the voices connected, it's very easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, even if that was more virtual connection so that the bill for getting everybody together was not so yeah. expensive, um, that would be still a great avenue, I think, to seek yeah. for. And it's, yeah, it's been incredibly helpful. And I think all of the educators work together really well. They get to know each other. They help each other out. And that council gives a huge amount of input in the creation of the competency profiles. It's been a very valuable thing, yes. Besides um, costuming and setting the dance floor on fire, what does Nancy Schoenar do in her free time? What's your free time look like up there? I have uh, I have a little more free time now because I've just gone to three days a week from full time, which I'm enjoying. It's still busy, but not as busy. But uh, things that I've been involved in, I've um, you know, I guess I try to stay active. I, I I kayak in the summer, and I'm been very involved. I said with I love Zumba, so I've got into Zumba a lot, and. Mm-hmm. I've done course with that so I may I may teach that eventually I don't know but um, I've been playing um, folk harp so like Celtic harp for probably I think I started about 20 years ago and started playing with that because I sang a lot through um, through high school and university and so uh, and I did some choral singing for quite a few years and I, I got away from music when I started traveling as an application specialist and was really missing it so I started I got Go Carpa started and found a, found a teacher and started playing with that, and I really enjoy that. So I really want to focus more on that. As I work less, I want to get more involved in music, and I've just recently rejoined a, a local choir to get back into, into choir singing. So it's oh, I'm that getting, is awesome! Filling up my spare time, yes. I love that. And one of my best friends, who's a sonographer with me, she um she started she loved yoga, fell in love with yoga, and became a yoga instructor, and it fits her perfectly. And I could not think of a more fitting role for you than a Zumba instructor. <laughs> seeing you on the dance floor and how much energy you had way beyond people that were like you said the students were like hey, get, get that ball of energy back out here <laughs> I, I go to zoom a lot and i'm determined to sort of keep my, my strength and flexibility up and there's there's a, another woman in my class and i think she's probably about 26 and the two of us is that we're keeping up with each other the whole time i <laughs> love it i love it I enjoy it so much. It's just, it's, it's great, high energy, lots of fun, and great, great way to burn off stress. I have done yoga. I don't dislike it. I'm just more into Zumba these days. Okay, Nancy. So one of the last questions that we always like to ask people, if you could look back on your career thus far, what would you want people to remember as one of your greatest contributions to the field? And what are your hopes and dreams for the occupation of sonography going forward? That's a big question. Um, and you know, I say, really, what is my largest contribution? Sometimes I think it's not very much, uh, but I think you know, really, my largest contribution is I have always been very, very passionate about the profession. And um, it's funny, my husband has even heard that from other people. I said, she's so passionate. I said, well, I really am. I really care about this, and I'm willing to share my opinion. I always have one, and so I think I, I want to get involved, and I really want things to be better. I see, I, I'm a problem solver by nature, and so that's what I want to do. If I see a 
problem. I want to work towards solving those problems. And I think I've been able to assist with a lot of those in different areas of sonography, both with education and sonography itself over the years. And so that's, I think that's probably my, my common sense and my passion are my biggest contribution. And in terms of the, uh, you know, what I would like to see, um, before I retire, I really would like to see some solid inroads made in some type of advanced practice, just stabilizing it, getting our, our basic standards more solidified and, and advanced, some advanced practice and recognition for what we do. And I thought, you just keep trying. Eventually, you'll get there. Maybe we've accomplished a lot more than we ever thought we could. It's frustrating to not move as fast as we would like to, but there, there was a lot that we have. Especially in Canada, we've made a lot of changes since even 2000. So there's a lot of progress being made. So I would really like to see, once we get our standards a little more solidified, to be able to, to move into that sort of next, at least a next level role for a sonographer who's dedicated and skilled. I think that's great, and I bet you are such a mentor to your students coming out of the programs, just like Lorinda was for me. And I'm sure that Lorinda has been an amazing mentor to you your whole life. I said, remember when I first met Lorinda, I started on, on the board at SDMS, and I had never even heard of her, and I thought, you were coming, just coming in as president. Kevin was just becoming past president, and you're taking over as president, and I, all I kept thinking is, what a wise woman this is. Oh, a fabulous answer to things. And you're she is incredible. That's because I had Joan as a mentor. Right. Um, you know, Andrea Skelly nominated me to yeah. run for regional director. And when I got my paper yeah. ballot, I was yeah. running against Joan. <laughs> and I was like, I'm voting for her. So then her <laughs> Oregon state representative That's when they had those positions. So, yeah. But I, I remember one of the discussions over um, trying deciding whether we would try and raise Jews and there was gigantic angst over raising Jews and basically just summed it up and is that you make a decision, decide you think it's right and go with it and trust that it's going to work. And it did. Yeah. Yep. She has been amazing. And that's, that's why I feel such an obligation to is now, I feel like I'm not the younger generation anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> I feel like I'm the middle generation somewhere in that. And I just feel like it's now we got to find our role with new technology, being able to reach out to the world and just a click of a button. We need to figure out how we can make things easier, how we can make things move forward um, and how we can do um, honor all the people that came before us and did yeah. And it's great to see that because it is your time and we know you can do a great job. And so it's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see that because those of us who've been around for a lot of years, we've been worried about, okay, what's going to happen to the profession when we leave? But when then we see the young, interested people, there's a whole, there are a whole bunch of fabulous people out there. And it's really nice to see that. Oh, Actually yeah. kind of cool to see. SDMS board, it was funny, all of us who left this year were kind of old, and all these new people, younger people came in, I thought, that's exactly what we wanted to have happen, and so this is perfect. Thank you so much, Nancy, for joining International Sonography Podcast. I'd like to encourage our listeners to come back for our next episode seven, and we will be talking with Dale Sear, a former sonographer and now executive director of Entelios, which is ARDMS and APCA. Thank you, and see you on our next episode.